0: Oops, I have to use this thing. This sermon is part of the Chapel Core series, and I am not going to tell you a lot about that. I think you've heard about it several times. But one thing, I, I listened to all the Chapel Core sermons uh, within two days last week, and that was really powerful. And I would suggest that you do that over Thanksgiving or Christmas break, that you go back in the archives and get all the sermons and listen to them close together, because they're all about how God's presence is revealed. And they've all been Old Testament so far. Now, Yeah. <laughs> but now we get to move to the New Testament. Okay. Um, and... I, let's, just, let's just start for, by asking God to anoint this thing. Lord, I feel all shaky. I, um, I really know what you want to say. I, f- I think I do anyway, but it's not an easy word. And so I'm just asking again for your sovereignty over this room and over this video, which will be shown to many more people than are sitting here, and help me to communicate well. Your heart. Your word. Your word. So we pray in your name, amen. So I was assigned John chapter 1, which is like Dr. Amy always preaches on John chapter 1, like there's nothing else to preach on. And I'm being disobedient this morning, I'm going to preach on John 14 instead, because I did preach on John chapter 1 in chapel, and you should be able to find that in the First Things last series. That was Dr. Brookman, then me, then Dr. Mayo on the tabernacle. That's a really good series. You may want to get a hold of that. Um, the whole Gospel of John is about God revealed in Jesus. It cha- chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And from that point on, John is showing who God is by showing us Jesus. And when I was thinking about what passage I should use, the Holy Spirit guided me back to the year 2009, which was a very hard year in my life, and reminded me of how the farewell discourse of Jesus to his friends had powerfully intersected with my life back then. And so today I'd like to share with you about some of Jesus' last words to his friends, his disciples, and how that reveals God's presence to us. And what I need to do is tell a story and the I'm going to introduce you to a family called the Stallmans. I think there's a video or a picture coming up now. What I want to say to my friends, the Stallmans, um, in case they hear this because it's being recorded, I'm really sorry if I get some of the details messed up, but I know the essence of this is true. This is Kevin and Karen, uh, three of the siblings of that family. Most of what I'm going to talk about today will be about Kevin. So Karen is his younger sister, and they also had an older sister who I'll talk about first. My mom and their mom, Peg, grew up as little girls' neighbors in southeastern Pennsylvania. And they were best buddies all the way through high school. And they both got married and started having families. And then this wonderful twist, both families ended up locating to Wisconsin. So the Andersons and the Stallmans started a tradition of getting together at least twice a year for several days each time, usually Easter and Thanksgiving, but we also did a lot of camping trips together. I was the oldest of the three Anderson girls, and the Stallmans also had three kids, Kay, Kevin and Karen. Kay was my age, and we became really good friends. She was a city kid, I was a country kid, and so she would talk about boys, and I would go, "Ah, let's go look at the cows. And I would introduce her to all the exciting and dangerous things that you could do on a farm. Don't ask me for details on that, I could tell that another time about things that I'm actually surprised that I survived. At Thanksgiving, The dads would pretend to go deer hunting. Sometimes they got one. I usually prayed for the deer, so maybe that's why they didn't get very many. And they would be out gone all day. And the moms and the kids would do all sorts of craft projects. Peg... Uh, Kevin and Karen's mom would always bring a a new craft project that was really fun to do, and lots of cooking, and we went out to the barn and did the early chores, so when my dad came home, as soon as it got dark, uh, to do the milking, he could start right away. And while dad was milking cows, Jim uh, would be walking around the barn, picking up the barn cats and pulling their whiskers and saying, you like that? You like that? Jim was a tease. He didn't just tease the cats. He teased everybody. And that's a family trait in the Stallmans. My family is a kind of a serious family. we were not very good at being silly and lacking some in people skills. So when the Stallmans arrived every year, it was like the circus lights went on. So much laughing and hilarity and creativity. The Anderson girls looked forward to the Stallman's. We would watch the road for the car lights to sh- start shining a mile away. That that, that, that was probably the Stallman's. And we could tell it was the Stallman's because the car would be moving really slow because Jim would be teasing the kids who wanted to get to the farm and he would drive slower and slower the more they wanted to get there to make them go crazy. So... The Stallmans became closer to us than our cousins were, very close to us. Kay, who was my age, died of a brain tumor when she was 15, when I was 15. This was the first major loss that I ever experienced in my life. I knew she was going to have surgery. I knew that it was a serious thing. I just expected everything to turn out okay, like kids do. And of course, this was a huge loss for for me, but even more for the Stallman family. Well, I went on to college. I got involved in Chi Alpha. And for some reason, I invited Kevin, who was five years younger than me, to come along to the SALT conference one year. That's a big regional student gathering over New Year's. I I thought I would get him converted to be a Christian. And we had this long drive in the car to and from Salt. And lo and behold, I discovered that he had grown up as a Christian. Same as me. We just never talked about church stuff when we were kids. Kevin and Karen were enough younger than me that I hardly noticed them growing up. That long car ride became the beginning of a friendship that became... Really, really special. Kevin moved from being a sort of cousin to a sort of brother. We talked about all sorts of personal things, including how he had planned to marry me when he was a little boy. That wasn't going to happen. Or serious things like he shared with me that he had been abused by a sports coach when he was little. And now we were young adults, and... We didn't see each other at the twice-a-year family gatherings anymore. Those, those happened a few more times, but not very much. But we found other ways to connect as much as possible. I became a missionary to Germany, but I flew back for Kevin's wedding to Cherie, and then I slept through the whole wedding with jet lag. Kevin and Cherie visited me in Cologne, where I was a missionary, and I once flew from when, after I was here at North Central, I once flew from SBL at Nashville, Tennessee, to Ohio, where they lived, and then drove with them to her parents and then on to Wisconsin to have Thanksgiving with Jim and Peg. Kevin uh, frequently, oh, this, I guess the next picture is of the family. No way, yep. So there's Jim on the far left. I'm gonna talk about him. With Peg, Kevin, and Cherie in the back with their two boys, Karen and Kevin, two Kevins in the family with their two girls. Um, so, uh, another time uh, that there is a. Where'd that note go? Did it? Was it up there before? Okay, that note. That's just an example of Kevin would leave little notes behind. I have a really funny one from him, but I couldn't find it. About he visit, when they visited me in Germany. When you say thank you, you say Dankeschön, and he wrote Donkey shoes for the eating and drinking and on like that. But I couldn't find that one. But this is a blessing that he just left for me. Another time I came to the Stallman's Timeshare in Door County, if you haven't been to Door County, it's lovely, and we had a wonderful time with the whole clan there. Kevin had discovered that I couldn't get my favorite soda, which is Ruby Red Squirt, in in Minnesota. You couldn't buy it anywhere here. And so he and his two boys secretly bought a whole lot of ruby red Squirt and hid it in my my car under the luggage, so I didn't discover it until I got home. And we made jokes afterward about how I had smuggled it across the Wisconsin-Minnesota border, and I was lucky I didn't get caught when we went through customs. Of course, the Stallmans were huge Packers fans. They have season tickets, those are not easy to get. And so we share that. And Kevin and I did a lot of correspondence during the Iraq War and discovered that our political leanings were also pretty similar. When he was on the committee at his church to hire a new pastor, he wrote to me and bounced questions and ideas off of me. He took that as seriously as he did his job, which had something to do with managing millions of dollars of real estate for some big company. Jim got cancer around 2007. Jim was a fighter. He tried every treatment they offered him and he lived a lot longer than had been expected. During that period, I tried to get over to Plymouth, Wisconsin where they lived as much as I could, timing my visits to match up with Kevin and Cherise. And when Jim died in 2009, I arrived the night before the funeral in March. When the family was there in the church, they were up at the front standing in a circle praying and just standing together. And I was sitting in a pew watching them pray. And Kevin came over and said, why don't you join us? You're part of the family. And the next day, I was grading New Testament exams. So I, while the preparations were going on in the morning, I was in a back room grading exams. <clears throat> and in spite of the heaviness that Kevin must have felt <clears throat> at, his, at his dad's funeral, he stopped by several times to talk to me. I was privileged to read a scripture for Jim's funeral. Jim was a veteran and had been a major force in creating a veterans memorial in Plymouth. So after the funeral, all the mourners walked from the church to the memorial. I had a long drive back to St. Paul that day, so I drove to the memorial and for a goodbye hug. That was March. Now I'm going to read something to you from my journal from September, same year. My therapist thinks that I don't have well-developed object permanence, and that's why it's so hard for me to say goodbye. When I leave a place or a person, it feels like a death. I have trouble believing that I will see them again, so goodbyes are kind of like a death for me. But when I said goodbye to Kevin at Jim's funeral, I took it for Granted that I would see him again, many more times over many more years. And then in June, I get this phone call from mom, and she says, it's not good news, and he's gone. I feel betrayed My fears have been justified. Every goodbye could be the last goodbye. How can a person live with that? Kevin died suddenly, probably of a brain aneurysm, at 45 years of age. His funeral was in June. So I flew to Ohio and both our families were there to mourn along with many other people who came from near and far because Kevin was well loved. And again, the family asked me to read a scripture, this time out of John 14. I looked at the text and something became real to me in a way that I had never experienced before. And I asked if it was okay, and they gave me permission to to do more than just read the scripture, but to also comment on it. And now uh, what you'll see next is the bulletin from the funeral and my little notes from which I said basically what I'm going to say now, speaking to the people at the funeral. All of us are sitting here today in deep shock. When Jim died? It was the completion of a long life, well-lived. But Kevin, this just feels so wrong, like we've been violently cut off from him. One thing it makes very clear to me is that there must be eternity because We know deep inside our souls that he must still exist. He can't simply be gone. And another thing that I've learned in the past 24 hours is about the death of Jesus. Here's this well-loved man who has spent years hanging out with a group of good friends They highly respect him as their teacher and mentor, and in fact, they recognize that he has a high calling. He might even be the Messiah. But that doesn't prevent them from laughing and feasting and sitting around the fire into the wee hours of the morning, talking, having theological debates, or just enjoying the countryside as they walk through it. And now they've just come from the house of some more good friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha, where he raised their brother Lazarus from the dead. If that's not a sign of his being the promised one, then what is? And now the whole gang has entered Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus, coming into the city, was greeted by the crowds, and they threw down palm branches and shouted messianic phrases over him. Think how giddy you would be if you were beginning to realize that your best friend is the anointed one of God. They're so happy, and they eat together, and Jesus washes everyone's feet, and that's kind of strange. And then it gets worse. He starts talking about dying. Well, everyone has to die sometime, but really he should focus now on taking the rulership of Israel. Jesus, meanwhile, knows how hard the shock is going to be on them. They think they're going to be part of the new golden age of Israel, and they'll be important in his kingdom, but also still best friends, the old gang who used to walk the dusty paths while Jesus preached to the poor and healed the lepers. He knows that from one minute to the next, everything is going to go wrong. The arrest, the trial through the night, the torture, the walk to the place of execution, the hours of agony before he dies and is buried. Their joy will turn to grief they will feel betrayed, and they won't understand. They'll be afraid for their own lives. But most of all, they'll have this deep, deep aching agony in their guts, suddenly and violently cut off from this friend they live, love so much. They're going to feel like we did at the funeral that day all that pain. And by resonating with their loss, we also learn something about who Jesus is and how Jesus is the presence of God to them. He's not going to spare them the pain, but he is going to prepare them for it. And now because there's not time to read the whole chapter, I'm going to paraphrase Part of his prep- preparatory words in John 14. I encourage you to read the whole chapter, maybe for your devotions tomorrow. And if you're angry at God this morning, because I'm sure somebody is, then let him speak to you now the way he spoke to his best friends back then. Hey, guys, don't be upset. Trust me, I'm going to leave for a while. But I'll come back for you, I promise. And you'll know the way, Thomas. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Perfect setup for an I am statement, my Johannine literature students know. We, how can we even know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The, the way to the Father is through me. If you know me, you know the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I speak the words that the Father is speaking. I do the deeds that the Father is doing. And because I'm leaving, this is good news, because that means the Father is going to send another advocate to you, the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And he's going to be in you. And that's going to help too, so keep my word, and before you know it, my Father and I will come to you, and you will, you will have the same kind of community with us that we have with each other. In other words, the kind of community that's in the Trinity is the kind of community God has with us. And then at the end he says, here, let me bless you with my peace. Because I'm going to give you a totally different kind of shalom than the world does. Jesus knew that in a few hours, they would be confused and lost and angry. I was angry at Kevin's death and at God's thundering silence in the face of my accusations. Why did you let this happen? But when I asked that question, God didn't answer it, but he was with me. And that's the difference. We want the answers to the questions, but we can have God's presence. He didn't tell me why it happened, but he was with me, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God cared. And in the end, I did find his peace, his shalom.